Walker takes you through Chinatown, the mystic, mysterious regions of the Orient. See the dens of sin, the sacred joss houses, and the inner temple of the six companies, ancient secret orders of the great Tang. See Chuck Riley, the boss of Chinatown, in this palace of pleasure, where East meets West in raucous reverie. Now, ladies and gentlemen, bear yourself for a real treat. Chinatown the Mysterious. Now in Chinatown, on the right is the famous Port Arthur, known from coast to coast for its Chinese herbs and fancy dishes. Straight ahead, in the basement is located the den of Unwang, the India. the Rockefeller, the Mysterious Orient. You are passing you're listening to The Seasoned Migrant, a show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Yusuf Amanullah. And I'm Leonard Bout. And on this episode, we're talking about Chinatown, food, migration, and hybrid spaces. So if ever you've watched a movie and there happens to be some people eating a Chinese takeaway, it's always shown as this elaborate spread of many cartons of differing shapes and sizes filled to the brim with some sort of delicious dish. And one of those tends to be chop soy. And the interesting thing about chop soy is that everyone has heard of it, but not many people eat it nowadays. But it was the first of its kind. It was the first dish of Chinese American cuisine. And what's been really fascinating is that on top of the Chinese American food that we often see in Hollywood movies, because Chinese migration has gone so far and so wide, there's always been a lot of opportunity for these Chinese dishes to be influenced by local contexts. And so as Chinatowns around the world evolved, so did these new and exciting hybrid cuisines. So here to talk to us about the history of how Chinese American food came to be is Andrew Ko, who is a scholar specializing in culinary history and the author of Chop Soy, A Cultural History of Chinese Food in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode, Andrew. We wanted to start by asking you what it was that motivated you to write about Chinese food in America. Well, I have a, a sort of... Uh interesting family history um, associated with um, the love of Chinese food. My father worked for the CIA in Taiwan, and he arrived there in the early 1950s when um, many of the, the greatest chefs in China were working in Taipei and cooking in Taipei. And so he had absolutely just sort of discovered the joys of Chinese food there. You know, he discovered Sichuan food there and all the, you know, food, you know, China, you know Beijing style dumplings and, and, and on and on. So he just 
He loved Chinese food and he came back to the United States and um, he couldn't find it because everybody was serving chop suey and chow mein. Um, and um, we would go to New York City, you know, every, every month or two and go down to Chinatown, you know, looking for real Chinese food and sometimes finding it, but also often being very, very disappointed because in Chinatown, there were restaurants serving the good stuff and there were restaurants serving chop suey. And that was the one dish that we could never, ever have was chop suey. Um, so, you know, that became sort of part of my life, like searching for great Chinese food. And luckily, I came of age during a time when all these, you know, immigrants were arriving and restaurants were opening. And, um, and I moved to New York and, and um, I've been eating, you know, Chinese food consistently and, and regularly and cooking Chinese food ever since. And then actually, you know, on the chop suey front, I was... Uh, Years ago, I, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I was, um, you know, I do a lot of historical research in library and I found a picture of New York City's Chinatown. And on the sign, signage of a lot of the restaurants from the 1940s, it didn't say Chinese restaurant or restaurant on the sign, it just said chop suey. And I'd never had, actually never had chop suey. And I knew Chinatown from, you know, you know from more recently and all those signs have disappeared. And so I asked, I just asked myself, what, you know, what happened? What happened to chop suey? Where did it, where did it go? And what was chop suey, anyways? Because I didn't really know. And um, you know, I, I'm a food writer, so I, I began to do historical research into all these questions. And um, one thing led to another, and I actually tasted chop suey, and um, it ended up. I wrote a book called Chop Suey: A Cultural History of Chinese Food in the United States. So I'm somehow linked now to the, to the question of chop suey. And so, Andrew, what were the first interactions between China and America? And what was the culture around food and restaurants in China during this time? Well, Americans and Chinese first met in 1784 when an um, American trading ship called the Empress of China arrived in, in the port of Canton, as it was known then, um, to trade ginseng for whatever wares they could find in China. And so um, this was a small group of American traders who had, you know, they were a new country, a small country, a country uh, very much on the margins of the world. And um, they were going to the oldest, one of the most complicated civilizations in existence on Earth then. So it was like the oldest people um, um, seeing the survival of the newest people on Earth. And um, they arrived in Canton, and it, it's very different from arriving in China today. Westerners were confined to a trading um, area, um, a walled area in the city of Canton, which they could not leave. Um, and it was like a little Western world in there. And um, they saw very little of China and Chinese life beyond that world um, um, inside the walls. But that said, beyond the walls, um, unbeknownst to men, and they, they also weren't particularly curious about Chinese culture, except in the super, its superficial aspects. And, um, but beyond the walls, there was this like, you know, enormous ancient civilization with a, probably the most highly developed food culture in the world. And um, it was just, I mean, just so many layers of things going on. I mean, if you just look at the restaurant culture, um, you know, at the lowest level, and uh, you know, you have street food, like hawkers selling food um, from carts um, and, or little stands on the street. 
Um, and then you have like sort of stalls and markets where people were selling noodles and, and soups and, and dumplings and fast foods. And then beyond that, if you're going up the social scale, you have restaurants, um, you know, formal restaurants, which were attracted more the sort of merchant gentry elite. And, um, and then further up the scale, you had the, uh, the foods um, and the food culture of the Chinese imperial officials. And um, this was highly, highly regulated and um, you know, dependent on where you stood in, this, in Chinese society. So everybody from like the lowest tax clerk to the emperor had in what in essence was a set menu um, of dishes and foods to which they were um, you know, entitled to as for their position. And at the very top, the emperor of China would, would um, you know, have an evening meal with 75 or 150 courses. Obviously, he didn't eat that. It was, a, it was mostly a ritual meal to serve a kind of man-god. But uh, it was, you know, this, this was a, you know, incredibly developed and sophisticated food culture. And how did Chinese restaurants first emerge in 19th century America? And how did the subsequent Chinatowns develop? Well, um, so the next step of the story is the arrival of the first Chinese in the United States. And that happened with the California gold rush. Uh, in 1848, they discovered gold in the mountains of California, east of San Francisco. And the word traveled all over the world and also and arrived in, among other places on the coast of China. And um, the peoples of the, of the southeastern Chinese coast were always the, the adventurers of China the people who are willing to, to take sea voyages and go, go to foreign lands um, you know, in search of money, in search of gold. And so they you know, immediately, in first in small numbers, and then by the hundreds and thousands, um, arrived on the coast of uh, California, landing mostly in San Francisco. And um, they, didn't, you know, were, they weren't just there to mine gold. Um, but they were there to, um, to, you know, to find all kinds of opportunities um, you know, in, uh, on the coast, both in the city of San Francisco and in the hills. Um, and they brought with them their culture, including their food culture, because being Chinese, very, being very, very proud of their culture and being very, uh, you know, their culture was like, uh, their food culture was like, a, you know, intrinsic part of themselves. They wanted to eat Chinese food. So they brought Chinese ingredients with them and they opened Chinese, the first Chinese restaurants in the United States. And uh, initially they were, these were small restaurants, um, but um, you know, within a few years, within five years, you had you know, quite elaborate establishments, which were, were like a relatively fancy um, restaurant in Canton, in, um, in Guangdong. And you know, they, this was almost, totally for serving their own people. Westerners would go to visit these early Chinese restaurants in San Francisco just for like the exotic thrill to taste the foods, but they had the most incredible series of biases about the Chinese and about the food that the Chinese ate, which they inherited from the other Europeans who, who were there earlier in China and particularly from the English that the Chinese food customs were unclean, that they ate dogs, cats, and rats, 
that their, their food smelled of um, foul oils, i.e. sesame oil, which they, you know, the, the aroma of sesame oil, they, they did not like. And, um, and, you know, and on and on. And, and, and they had all these weird customs like eating with sticks, i.e. chopsticks, um, cutting up the food into little tiny bits, um, rather than like slicing a big roast beef. People's food habits were deeply ingrained and they could not, you know, today we're a lot more sophisticated and you know, willing and happy to shift between food cultures. Back then, that did not happen. early Chinese restaurants, who are the clientele and how do you think they shaped what Chinese American cuisine became? Well, the next step of the story is um, how it moved from San Francisco to the rest of the country. In the 1850s and 1860s, there grew a very loud and often violent anti-Chinese movement. Um, there was a tremendous amount of nativism in California just like we see nativism rising today in the United States. And um, the movement was, I mean, the sort of basic tenet of the movement was the Chinese must go. And so they literally burned Chinatowns. They had, you know, huge demonstrations um, and they would march into the Chinatowns all across the West and literally burn buildings down and run the Chinese out of town. And there were a number of massacres of, of Chinese. So many of them went back to, to, to China, some ended up in Mexico, but lots just headed east um, to the various big cities of, of the East Coast, um, like Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, and particularly New York City. And um, you know, New York City at the time was, uh, you know, we're talking about the 1870s and 1880s, was at the heart of like one of the largest movement of immigrants um, in, in certainly in, in, in American history. Um, immigrants from all over the world were coming in there. So they settled on um, mostly on Lower Mott Street, you know, which is the heart of what today is New York City's or the Manhattan Chinatown. And once again, um, just like in San Francisco, they opened restaurants for themselves at first. But the food culture in New York then was very different from the food culture in San Francisco. And um, there was a group of uh, New Yorkers called Bohemians who were really fascinated by foreign cultures. And it became a very chic thing. And, you know, there were like wealthy and, um, artists and writers and, and, you know, publishers and people like that, theatrical types, actors and directors, playwrights. And um, they felt it gave them cultural cachet to try foods down in the immigrant quarters. And uh, around 1884, 1885, they discovered Chinatown. They started going to the restaurants on Mott Street. And, you know, not only was this the most exotic food they ever seen, um, served in, in exotic settings with, you know, with, you know, chopsticks and uh, imported Chinese decor, but they, they suddenly decided that they liked the food. One of the dishes was, that they discovered was a dish that they called chop sali, which was um, a kind of uh, a stew of like hacked up little pieces of meat and vegetables um, served over rice. 
And this, of course, was um, the food that, that um, we know now, um, everybody's heard of, but probably hasn't tried, called chop suey. And chop suey became the basics, basis of Chinese American food. Um, and, and from that little seed on Mott Street in Chinatown, th there grew in this whole culture of Chinese American restaurants, Chinese chefs serving Chinese food, which is, had been adapted to American tastes to, um, for American clientele. And um, they started opening restaurants outside of Chinatown, first up further north in Manhattan, and then you know, one by one in other cities across, uh, across the East Coast, and then you know, all over the country, and then even into little towns. And it was this menu of chop suey, chow mein, egg foo young, um, and then eventually egg rolls and dishes like mugu, gai pan, and things like that, um, which became a huge fad for Americans. And um, that's what really sort of changed Americans' minds about what Chinese food is. Um, and it's, of course, weird. And, you know, one of those weird twists is the foods that they were eating was not really Chinese food that any Chinese would recognize, but it had its basis in Chinese food. And could you tell us how the politics of Chinese migration affected the Chinese community in America? So I talked about the Chinese must go movement. And um, the Chinese, you know, it wasn't just a mass movement, but it was also a political movement. And um, politicians, um, you know, nativist, xenophobic politicians saw this as uh, was an opportunity to, you know, to cement their own power. And they started, you know, and they were in Congress and um, they managed to get federal laws passed, which first slowed and then eventually almost totally blocked Chinese immigration into the United States. First in 1882, and then more, and then the law which blocked immigration almost totally from from China was in, in, in I think 1924 and 1925, uh, signed by President Calvin Coolidge, and this had profound implications. It wasn't just Chinese; it was it was immigrants from many other parts of the world, and this had profound implications on the food that was served in the United States, because once you block the immigration, then you block cultural interactions, culinary interactions between the immigrants and their home country. So, um, and it, you make it much harder to get like, you know, ingredient, you know, soy sauce made in China, pickled vegetables made in China and things like that um, brought into the United States. And so that sort of hampered the development of Chinese food in the United States. And that's one of the reasons why Chinese American food you know, was able to spread and able to become so ingrained in, in our sort of culinary minds about the, that this is Chinese food is because we didn't have access to the food that they served in China. And this is the same thing, you know, this happened with Italian food and, and all kinds of food. I mean, you know, the 1920s and 30s were for ethnic food in the United States were, were a very bad time. So it, it, was not, it was not good for Chinese food. The big change came after World War II, when they, the, the politicians in Washington started opening the door up bit by bit to, to Chinese immigration again, um, particularly um, for um, Chinese American soldiers who had married, first China, they had married women in China um, when they had uh, you know, fought over in, in, in Asia during World War II, so they were allowed to bring those wives back. 
And then, um, you know, bit by bit, the door opened. And then in 1965, President um, Lyndon Johnson signed the Immigration and Naturalization Act. And that opened the door uh, much, much wider to immigration from many parts of the world. And um, that allowed Chinese from Hong Kong, Taiwan, Chinese um, people, you know, Chinese who, who lived in Vietnam and other parts of Southeast Asia to come to the United States. And they started opening restaurants, you know, in, in, uh, particularly in, in New York and San Francisco. And um, they brought a whole completely different array of food to, to the United States, just at a time when Americans were much more interested in like um, opening out to the, to the outside world and to, into outside cultures. Um, so for instance, you had dim sum, uh, was one of them, but most importantly, you had spicy food, uh, spicy food from China, which actually came through Taiwan, foods from Sichuan and Hunan, um, filled with chili peppers. And um, this was, you know, this was like the night, late 1960s, early 1970s, the time of, of the counterculture. And um, eating chili peppers was, uh, you know, like Kung Pao chicken and dishes like that was a kind of your sort of sophistication rebellion against the sort of staid um, middle-class culture. And, you know, that was, and that, you know, changed Chinese food um, very, very significantly. And then, you know, and then since then, we've had then in, in the uh, late 1970s and 1980s, after the opening to communist China, then you had immigrants from Fujian province and, and you know, all, you know, from every other part of, of China. I mean, immigration has paid, played a huge factor in what kind of food that we eat, um, at least as far as Chinese food. And, you know, if you bring the story up to today, this is where now we're seeing, you know, the possibility of the door closing, um, if it hasn't already. I mean, immigration is certainly way, way down since the COVID crisis. Um, and um, if the, you know, the current uh, administration in Washington closes the door further, um, to, to immigration, um, it's going to have profound effects on the kind of food that we eat. And since then, how have Chinatowns and Chinese food been portrayed in the media and in the arts? And what does the evolution of these portrayals tell us? Back in the early part of the 20th century, Chinese food and Chinese restaurants were seen as these more or less potential dens of iniquity. Because Chinese, um, they were seen as opium smokers and uh, involved in the white slave trade. So there was always this like aura of danger um, to Chinese restaurants at that time. And then, of course, during the sort of Chinese American chop suey era, they became much more sort of commercialized and middle classized, if that's a word, if I might coin a word, where they became very sort of safe suburban places to go. And then since, since the, um, you know, the 1970s and 1980s, the Chinese restaurants, and certainly in, in big cities and communities where significant Chinese populations, I mean, I think they're now, I mean, it's, it's a place where people go where, you know, you gain non-Chinese eaters who go there, ha gain a, a certain cultural cachet by going to these restaurants and showing that you can eat the correct foods, the real Chinese food, the so-called authentic Chinese food, and, you know, and, and enjoy it and, and eat well-spiced food, well-seasoned food with, with ingredients that you wouldn't see on, on American tables. Um, so there, there's a certain sophistication involved in, in Chinese food and also like knowledge of like if you go to a hot pot restaurant, 
how do you eat uh, you know a hot pot meal requires you know diner participation so do you know how to eat a hot pot meal um so i think that it's certainly associated with sophistication these days or at least it has been up until you know nine months ago um the question is now um you know particularly since the covid crisis started and the portrayals of of chinese immigrants being linked to or potentially carriers of of viruses um i mean there's certainly been reflections of fear of chinese immigrants of attacks on chinese immigrants on like public transportation or on the street and also people being people being sort of ignorantly afraid to go to a chinese restaurant as a you know and feeling that it's more dangerous than some other kind of of restaurant and um you know that wrapped with the sort of rising sort of nativistic xenophobia in the united states and the um cut down on immigration and and the strains you know economic strains generally felt by restaurants well well it's 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 not a good time and um it's unclear right now uh I'm speaking the day before election day um which way um the country will go and which way immigration will go Thank you so much Andrew for taking us through this 200 year journey of how Chinese American food came to be a distinct cuisine of its own and how it has been interwoven with the political history of migration to the country. It's been especially interesting to look at the portrayals of Chinese food when these have changed so quickly in the last year as a result of the COVID pandemic and it'll be interesting to see what happens in light of this pandemic. and the general reversal of cultural openness that we see in today's world. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at @seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback. So let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.